humor. Hi, welcome to the Creative Review podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and this is our last podcast of the year. This time I'm joined by my colleagues, Patrick Burgoyne and Rachel Stephen. Hi. Hello. And we're going to talk about a few things that have happened this year, our bits of favourite work, some of the trends that we've noticed across the design and ad industries, and I guess anything else that kind of comes to mind. Okay, to kick us off, uh, Pat, I'm going to ask you, what, what piece of work have you felt has been most significant and exciting this year? Well, well I guess um, as a journalist, you have this uh, compulsion to um, tell people about stuff that you're excited about. And I think for me, probably the thing I remember this year that I really had that feeling about was the Nike um, Nothing Beats a Londoner ad. I think for me, it was um, a piece of work that was just right on so many levels it was the way uh, it captured the right tone it was the way it was cast the way it used um, a mixture of athletes and uh, young real people if you like Um, the way it was shot the the music everything about it I felt was absolutely right Um, it took some risks in terms of it knew it was going to alienate people from other cities and it was fine with that and I think also it was really important um, at the time because um, young Londoners have had a, a terrible two years, really, where we've had this awful wave of violence and knife crime. Yeah. It feels to some extent like they're a community under siege. So to have an ad like that, which really celebrated them for who they were, I felt was a, a fantastic thing to do. And I think that contributed to why it was so successful I mean it wasn't without its problems I mean as some people rightly pointed out it didn't necessarily reflect all of young London in terms of the different communities that it focused on and there were some significant gaps there but I just think by and large it was a really um, exciting um, right piece of advertising and it's rare that those come along these days. Yeah, I think it's really unusual that you get something that actually feels genuine. Yeah. And, uh, and what seems interesting to me is that I would have thought perhaps a brand like Nike might have thought, well, it's so specific about London. But actually, I, in reading stuff, people didn't seem to have a problem with that in other parts of the world. Like, they sort of all were like, well, I don't really necessarily quite know what's going on here, but it's still interesting and exciting and energetic. And it didn't really matter that you might not get all the in-jokes that were in there. No, and I think it, it just it captured a spirit. And I think the other thing is we've talked a fair bit about purpose in the last year and this idea of brand purpose and I think in general at Creative Review we've been quite um, sceptical about the idea of brand purpose but I did think that this one was an example of a brand getting it right around that kind of stuff because and this maybe didn't come through quite as much in in what was written about the ad at the time but it, it aired at a time when Nike was putting a lot of Uh, events on during half term where it was investing in local communities putting on sporting events for people investing in facilities um, and the ad tied in with that activity and so it was Nike actually doing things on the ground for the benefit of communities in a kind of authentic brand purpose way that to my mind was much um, more effective and more appropriate than a lot of the other so-called brand purpose stuff that we Yeah, it wasn't earnest, was it? It wasn't a sort not of, at all. look that's, at how brilliant we are. That's thing. why I think it was so kind of authentic. It wasn't earnest. It was very much kind of um, 
right and appropriate. The only thing I wish, and maybe this is going to come, but it hasn't yet, is I kind of thought they were going to then do ones from other cities and it was going to be this incredible kind of wave of stuff. Yeah, I imagine that they were going to do the same thing and and that you'd see them either from around the world or maybe even from other parts of the UK and that would have been brilliant because they could have then answered back, oh, you think you're cool, well, we're even better. Yeah, it felt like it was a bit of a sort of challenge thing. Yeah, Yeah, that would have been amazing. Who knows, maybe they did have that plan. Um, It suffered, obviously, from a legal kind of wrangling where, because it used the expression Londoner, but it's about LNDR, which was trademarked by another company. So whether that, because that seemed to derail it slightly, it was getting all this momentum and then it had to be pulled because of that and they did lose that case. So maybe that's been a factor. Yeah, it could be, could be. I think the only other sort of quibble I had was was the the range of sports that they chose. Inevitably, that's obviously going to be in line with where Nike want to be pushing certain ranges. This is your but sadness about cricket. This is my sadness <laughs> about cricket where there is a fantastic um, engagement, particularly with the Asian community in cricket in London and not to see that reflected. Because Nike does sell cricket equipment, yeah. cricket shoes and so on. An and not to see that reflected in the ad, I felt was a real missed opportunity because I don't feel like um, the Asian communities involvement in in club cricket in 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 london really gets the recognition it, it deserves and so i was disappointed by that yeah yeah that feels like an oversight in an ad that was otherwise so great at putting yeah. together all those different you know, sporting you, communities you've got space for rowing and you've got space for ice hockey yeah. and to miss out <laughs> something that thousands of people young people engage with um from precisely the kind of communities they were saying that they wanted to reach uh, yeah was, and actually was, in the uk are shared. underrepresented in advertising often yeah. so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, Rach, what what was your what did you most enjoy writing about or interviewing someone about this year? Yes, I'm going to sound like I'm shamelessly plugging my own content here, but it's <laughs> <laughs> quite a right. great um, story written by Rach. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I so I really enjoyed speaking to um, Erica Dawn. He was the graphic designer on Wes Addison's Isle of Dogs, yes. um, and also speaking to Adam Stockhausen and Paul Harrod, the production designers. Um, so we we interviewed Paul and Adam for our humour issue, um, but I also spoke with with Erica and then um, spoke to her on stage at DNAD Festival, and I think. What was so lovely about that project um, was just the film from a craft perspective. I mean, it was an astonishing amount of attention to detail that's gone into kind of every scene, but it just felt like everything was so lovingly crafted and and really kind of thought about. And it was a really kind of collaborative project with all of these amazing, this huge army of kind of model makers and puppet makers and set builders and graphic designers. Mm. And obviously what I've seen by Wes, he's kind of known for having a very meticulous... um, I and being very very involved in in the kind of uh, the visual details in a film um but I just think it was an amazing piece of craft and I think from a graphic design perspective Erica just had this really interesting role um and and she was kind of just making hundreds and hundreds of of tiny tiny props in all different sizes um so I think just a, a kind of fantastic achievement from that team really yeah, always with Wes Anderson films, you massively envy the graphic designers yeah, because obviously it was like Annie Atkins in the with the Grand Budapest Hotel, and just it feels like it's like the yeah total dream job really. I mean, did you? How did you feel about the film itself? Did you enjoy the the film as a whole, or was it more the craft that was the thing? I did. I did really enjoy the film. Um, I thought it was funny. It was charming. Um, I'm. A animal lover and love dogs yeah yeah so, so, um, they were beautifully designed dogs that <laughs> yeah. did get you get you in the heart so <laughs> I thought it was endearing I don't think it's necessarily his his best film and I think there was um I always find him a bit chilly emotionally really? <laughs> yeah. I don't I've, but with all of them they're so incredibly 
perfect looking always mm. but, but somehow I don't I don't want to kind of shed a tear ever and I feel like come on somehow there's not is that just me I don't know I think this one because it had the dogs I was maybe a bit more of a kind yeah, of R factor but I do I do get what you mean and yeah. I think um yeah I think with this one maybe because it was based on animals and it was a kind of boy in his childhood pet that probably did kind of pull at people's heartstrings a bit more than yeah, maybe some me. of the other ones um <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah I think um I think it was, yeah, I, I really liked the film. I think there was a little bit of debate over the fact that he'd um, worked with a lot of um, actors who he's worked with in other films in the past. Oh, um, yeah, he had a bit of criticism for that. Yeah, and yeah. I think people were a little bit upset that he hadn't maybe worked with more Japanese actors. Um, but I think it's also difficult because Wes Anderson does have a cast that he returns to again and again, and, and he's got a very kind of idiosyncratic humour in his film, and so a lot of those people um, have, have appeared in kind of various productions. Um, but I think that there was that, that kind of issue with the film. Yeah, I think often with these things, it's, um, it's more that someone's not really thought about the bigger picture. And this, you know we see this a lot around, obviously, gender as well as race and ethnicity, Represented that people kind of go to their go-to collaborators, which makes sense in terms of what they're making as a kind of creative person, perhaps. But then, I don't know. Often it, you do feel like there's obvious things that get missed with this because it comes up again and again, doesn't it? That people don't include the right people necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And looking back, um, that does feel like a bit of an oversight. Um, but I think also how I kind of interpreted the film was very much a kind of love letter from Wes Anderson to Japan. Yeah, it really was. In the same was. way that, you know, you'll see people write a novel when they're incredibly inspired by a place or a photographer shoot a photography project from their kind of perception of a place. So I kind of took it more on that level. But I think I, I can completely understand why people would feel frustrated that, that the cast wasn't um, a little bit more diverse with a little bit more representation from people who are actually um, from, from Japan or Japanese-speaking yeah, no, actors. It certainly was full of huge respect for Japan, but yes, it's, it's whether the right voices are yeah. getting heard again, which has been quite a narrative of the year. Absolutely. Um, the, one I, the piece of work I was going to mention was the... Uh, almost feels inevitable to talk about this, but the Childish Gambino yes. This Is America video, which, um, I mean, Pat, you mentioned earlier about the the nobody beats london people talking about that i mean i have a really clear memory of hearing about the charles gambino video and it was on a bank holiday and my first reaction was kind of almost like shit how are we going to cover this because everyone's already talking about this and what is there to say but actually we got we got a really nice piece from um uh a academic from exeter rob turner which you should read on our site it's the most read story of the year is it really okay yeah because it was a really good analysis of because there was so much to that video um that I almost feel like I can't even start to sort of unpack it all, really. But just visually, I mean, on the, the most basic level, as a visual kind of feast, it was incredible. And we've, for our, some of our end of year coverage, we've talked to the choreographer, who's a uh, woman who's originally from Miranda, but grew up in Britain um, and does a lot of work with African dance, but not solely that. And she sort of talked about how they're kind of both... Um, Donald Glover, Charles Gambino, and and the director um, Hiro Murai. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, they both really encouraged her to kind of go crazy, and you can kind of see that in the video itself. But do you, do you remember? Yeah, seeing I it feel like the song? choreography really kind of contributes to the whole kind of really frenetic energy of the whole thing. And yeah. I think it's definitely one of those videos where you just feel like every single part of it is is so well put together, and everything from that um that kind of first gunshot is so shocking and then the kind of sound of the music changes into that kind of trap sound and I think that's really powerful and I think 
when you watch it back, the more you watch it back, you start to appreciate how all of those different elements, so the visuals and the choreography and the timing and the staging, all just kind of fit together. Yeah. Um, and just the fact, to be honest, that it's a music video, <laughs> that I feel music videos, there's so much love from those who try and make music videos, but it's so hard to make good videos because there's just no money and people don't see it as something to invest in. And then you look at that and it's had, I think, 500 million views or something on, on YouTube. And, and there's obviously was real thought and um, ideas in there. And people were talking about whether it should be shown in museums. And I, I just think, oh, there's not enough given to that kind of medium that it, it, there should be because I think it yeah. can totally transcend just being an ad for a song you know it's, it's definitely I think it kind thing. of you can consider it as a kind of political statement and a piece of art Same. in its own right and I think you very rarely think of music videos now that way even though they have a bigger reach than they possibly ever have because of the amount of views that they can um, clock up online I think a lot of the videos that clock up those kind of views still tend to be very kind of artist driven very traditional videos but it's because of the artist or because of the song this one got a staggering amount of views purely because of the metaphors and the imagery and how it was relating to kind of what was going on in America. And so I think it's it's kind of, I guess, vindication of like the power of a really, really well-made music video and what, yeah. what that can do. Exactly, yeah. it can reach and it can create debate and discussion. And it was great. That's what I loved about it. It's a brilliant video, but brilliant to show that these things can come from so many different places now. And it's that's really important. All right, moving on, uh, Patrick, you've been quiet in the corner. I'm bringing you back in. <laughs> um, what sort of other trends? You talked earlier before, when we were planning this about fashion, some of the fashion logo stuff. Maybe we should talk about that that's happened this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I noticed Balmain has been the latest label to sort of strip out most of the character from a an original logo or at least a long-established logo and go for the um, very simple sans uppercase treatment mm. and there's been an image flying around on twitter which has got assembled half a dozen of these um burberry and saint laurent and 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 it just when you see them all lined up together it is really striking how many but well, they're um, all stripped back and minimalist they're all, all gone from virtually the same treatment mm, interesting. Um, and in some ways it you know it i guess there are some some solid reasons behind that I think it's particularly around uh, the use of digital media and, and how maybe difficult it is to um, accommodate some of the idiosyncrasies of some of the original logos that might have um, been hand-drawn or, or, or have some um, tricky details that don't maybe translate very well to an Instagram post or whatever. Yeah. But I think, you know, when in a world where we're, where we're told that it's so important to differentiate so important to be true to a, a particularly in fashion the the, the vision of a, of a creative director how come all these brands are ending up looking almost exactly the same yeah it's interesting that it's the logo because I but then I think of Burberry and I feel like Burberry have had actually quite an exciting year visually with the with the monogram that they've been using that's felt very different to what they were doing under Christopher Bailey and quite exciting so but but the logo you're right the logos feel but maybe maybe that's the point. Maybe the idea is to, to play down the importance of of the logo and almost make that just a kind of stamp. But the real creativity and visual excitement happens elsewhere. It happens in the photography. It happens in the use of all the different social media assets and animations and monograms and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that you can be maybe more playful with and push to further extremes, knowing that at the kind of root of the brand there is this simple expression um, that that doesn't need to have any of that 
quirkiness around it. Also, I guess, you know, there is just this sort of shift with, with graphic designers where uh, uh, there's almost a kind of default thing where people will um, research the, the history of something and find something in the books from 50 years back, 100 years back and return to that. So I'm sure in five years time, we're going to almost see the mirror image of this. Yeah. And the next time they do a rebrand, it'll be, oh, well, we researched the archives of this brand and we found this really interesting example from 1923 uh, where somebody had done this version of the logo and we thought that expressed the heritage that we wanted to express and it's almost going to go full circle. Yeah, yeah I interviewed someone from um, Seymour Powell, Mario Brown, for a piece I was doing on colour convention and how brands were kind of using quite unexpected colours um, for certain products. And she mentioned that the, the whole kind of stripped back black and white logo and she kind of saw it as a bit of a reaction to the fact that a lot of kind of long-standing brands were seeing kind of increased competition from startups or they were just seeing the introduction of these really kind of colorful or digitally led identities so kind of going back to this really stripped back black and white something from the archives is very much trying to kind of emphasize your heritage and your past but i think it's interesting because on the one hand i think you absolutely what you're saying about the the creativity of a brand kind of reflected through the clothes through the instagram through the photography and films and collaborations they do and I think that's increasingly important. But yeah, all of these new creative directors that have come in have, have obviously seen real importance in updating the visual identity to be a reflection of kind of a new start under their leadership. Yeah. And in a way, at the moment, they're all starting to look a bit homogenous when you see those pictures alongside each other. But a lot of those logos, like Burberry's have been in use for years and years and years. So maybe you might then start to see more creative takes on logos as this kind of goes on because if logos start to become a thing that gets completely redone every time a new creative director comes in maybe the next person will be a bit more playful oh, with sure. it or maybe yeah. it will sure so I think it'll be interesting stamp on it. yeah it's taking ownership a bit isn't yeah. it yeah, yeah so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of develops and I think at the moment when you look at a lot of them side by side they start to look quite similar and I think people did say you know it seems a shame that a lot of them have lost their kind of quirks but maybe that will kind of evolve I mean is it also a reflection of the way the industry is now so vast as well so that whereas in the past you the sort of fashion industry it wasn't small but it it sort of it wasn't the kind of enormous money-making machine that it is now and in across the whole world and sort of new markets and China and Dubai and places and and maybe a kind of more stripped back logo that yeah I think you're right I think I think a lot of those codes that that signify luxury to us that were in the old logos don't translate into other cultures mm. and they um they probably get in the way of a lot of what they what they're trying to do so we probably are looking at it from a very western centric lens and, yeah and yes. and we know the history of these things exactly. because we've sort of grown up with them but yeah and, and yeah, we just equate certain stylistic tropes or certain kind of um you know, visual metaphors with with luxury or heritage in a way that other cultures probably don't. Um, so I think you're right. I think there's a lot of that sort of thinking gone into this too. Yeah, yeah. perhaps you don't really need a man on a horse anymore. Or <laughs> a knight or a... Yeah. Man on a horse. <laughs> Who doesn't have a man on a horse? <laughs> uh, okay, what other trends have been going on this year? There's been, a, in the ad world, there's been a lot of talk about in-house um, which I, I guess may not feel enormously exciting if you don't work in the advertising world, but that's because also the advertising industry over the last few years has, I feel, been constantly examining itself uh, endlessly and wh- whether the model <laughs> is right and what the model is. But this year it did feel like there was quite a big shift in terms of 
whereas in-house in the past perhaps has been seen, so this is working within a brand uh, and doing your design and advertising work within a brand, to, to explain fully, um, is often seen like the sort of, the kind of duller choice, whereas I feel this year we've seen a lot of talent actually moving in that direction. Is this going to, Pat, is this going to be something that we see continuing next year? Yeah, I think inevitably, I think partly it's sort of structural, partly it's, it's a trend. I think there's an important distinction to make between in-house design teams and particularly those teams who are working on digital products and services and in-house creative teams who are producing advertising. They're not the same by any means. And I think on the design side, it's been led by a lot of the tech brands and been led by the digital transformation that a lot of traditional brands are undergoing. If you look at something like Sainsbury's that we wrote about a few weeks ago, how they've introduced a, a design system for their digital products and services and how designers are embedded with all the product teams who are working on everything from the grocery app to the self-service checkout. Mm. So every facet of that business design is playing a role. And so in some ways that's really encouraging for design because the, tr- the value of design in these big corporates is now being appreciated in a way it never was before but it's a certain type of design it's service design it's digital product design uh, it's ux it's not necessarily communications design so i think that's um i can see going to increase more and more and more with businesses of a certain scale because you need people who are really close to the brand Um, you need people who are working on those products and services every day who can iterate and continually improve them based on customer feedback and so on. But it does feel there's almost a requirement on the advertising side on that scale. I mean, I did an interview with um, The Guardian's in-house creative team, which, I mean, they still work with Karmarama as an external agency on occasional projects, but mostly it's done in-house. And it seemed like that was largely because there was a requirement to just produce so much yeah. stuff now and yeah. it's constant you know it's sort of online and so this big this sort of big idea and big brand campaigns aren't required as much as a kind of day-to-day sort of drip yeah somehow. absolutely no, I, think, I think that's true and I think you know the just the traditional agency structures struggle to cope with that kind of volume of work struggle to make that work from a business point of view mm. to be able to charge enough um, and to create to a brief that, that kind of works work. for that is, yeah, you know, it's, it's so, so ongoing, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I think there's also a kind of um, work-life balance thing that comes into play here as well, because we hear, you know, from a lot of corporates that they can offer things that maybe independent agencies and design studios can't. You know, they'll have a large HR function, they'll have a commitment to uh, career development for people, to training, to great uh, maternity and paternity leave. There'll be, uh, you know. HR functions that um, smaller businesses like, say, small design studios just can't have. And I think when we hear so much about younger people looking for a better work-life balance, perhaps not being willing to work every weekend and all hours God sends, um, that large corporates can perhaps offer something more attractive to those people and also you know they can maybe offer better pay they can offer share options they can offer the sense of being part of something exciting if you're working for a big tech brand you know all those things I think are are working towards in-house being for a lot of people a more attractive place to be. Mm, Interesting I mean creatively there was John Hegarty kind of came out sort of against it on a creative level and I think it is interesting that when we looked at the ads of the year it's not that none came from those in-house teams but 
there is definitely still a place for the external agency having that sort of bolder perspective yeah perhaps. and maybe they're allowed to do that or, or or they're expected to do that in a way that an in-house team would struggle to do yeah. so they can come in and and kind of break some of those rules or challenge some conventions so it's definitely still a role for that and definitely still a place for that and i think in some ways i think hegarty made some good points um but he was very much speaking about from the advertising point of view and not not the design point of view and I think it's important to make, make those distinctions um, but I think where we've seen some exciting um, in-house creative departments come to the fore such as for creative BBC creative yeah BBC creative, Sky, great creative year, I think. Yeah. but it's noticeable that they're all media companies you know so they're working with exciting product they have access to talent to uh, you know the great shows that are being made more difficult to do that if you're just working for a standard FNCG yeah, brand. I mean, that's definitely true, although that, again, is a traditional ad argument that you can only make great work for the kind of fun clients, and we, I mean, that's always been proven to not be the case. And, yeah, sure. And I was thinking, I wrote a piece about KFC's advertising this year, and that isn't an in-house model, actually, although there's something about when I interviewed um, Hermeti at uh, Mother, who do their advertising, it felt almost as if they were as embedded as an in-house team in that they were going to meetings about with the franchisees so they were going to business meetings which to my understanding isn't normally how closely you would get involved as a marketing team well I guess it depends on the client Mm. but it felt like that seemed to pay off in terms of the work that was made because there was a trust that came from that and I mean some of these things are arguments that go round and round yeah (laughs) because I mean you know in a lot of ways not so very different to the way ad agencies used to be able to work with clients when you hear about people talking about um, things like um, actually John Hegarty talking about with Audi and the whole Vorsprung Duck technique thing. Yeah, it was that really was close. His, yeah, because he, he they were on a factory visit and they saw that poster in a factory and thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't. And that used to be the kind of standard thing that when agencies got uh, a new client, they they'd go and do the factory visit, they'd drive the cars, they'd go and meet the 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 people making the thing, they'd meet all the people involved, and I'm not sure that that happens so much anymore. There seems a lot of layers now. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's interesting as well to think, because going back to your point about saying, you know, in-house teams seem to be doing a lot more of the day-to-day work, and then an agency might come in and do kind of a a big campaign and can give it a kind of fresh insight, but when I spoke to David Miami as well about how they've been working with Burger King, part Mm. of the reason they're allowed to do those really funny, provocative, really unexpected ads for Burger King is again because they've built up quite a lot of trust with them, they work really closely with them, they've done different campaigns with them that have proved really successful. And so I guess it is harder to kind of have that level of trust if you're kind of distancing yourself a bit more from those agencies and only kind of bringing people in, say, once every two years when you've got a big campaign. So it's kind of interesting to see how that that plays out and how it maybe affects the kind of work that can get created. Yeah, it'll undoubtedly ebb and flow. Yeah, and and (laughs) the other halfway house is, is where you get the big networks creating... Um, bespoke agencies for particular clients Mm. so you know you'll get publicists or somebody putting teams together pulled from all their different constituent agencies that will just work for one big car client or or, or big FMCG client so that's almost a kind of hybrid model between the two yeah Uh, I think we've got time for just one more topic quite quickly um, which is I think something that's come up a lot this year is about ethics in design and you actually talking about the in-house design teams made me think of it as well as I think there's as design has sort of risen in its profile within companies I think actually designers have begun to express anxiety of the role they play in perhaps creating 
I don't know, uh, products or apps or systems that maybe aren't necessarily so good for our mental health or so good for our kind of interactions with other people. And obviously there's been a a lot of discussion about social media this year. I don't necessarily feel there's been necessarily many conclusions that have come from the design world. I I think the whole design for addiction thing is really interesting and people are start as you say starting to get more aware of that because if you are creating these digital products and services and the whole way that their success is measured is about repeat visits time spent you are inevitably going to be trying to um, up the time spent in front of the screen and you they they do in doing that employ some of the same tactics that people have imported from things like for example the gambling industry because they know how to keep people playing and so um, those things are frequently quite unhealthy Um, and yes I don't think there's probably been enough thought or realization or research into the long-term effects of some of those um, designed in behaviors if you like. I think it might also just take a bit of time. I feel like this year we've spent a lot of time discussing that and now I guess it's up to teams to kind of think about how they can kind of implement that thinking in their own business and how kind of future product updates can maybe keep that in mind because I definitely do feel like there is a kind of growing resistance to um, those kind of addictive features of different apps and I think people have become much more aware of the way they've been traditionally kind of manipulated and and so I I hope you will start to see these kind of small changes and um, I went to a talk by um, from Headspace and they were talking about for example one of the things they've been trying to do is kind of design voice apps for people who want to spend less time on screens and Headspace is a different kind of app because you are supposed to use it just for a very short period of time each day and it's about meditation and mindfulness and so it's not kind of trying to get you sucked in for hours (laughs) yeah but even even they were trying to kind of be a bit more sensitive in their approach so they've designed this kind of nighttime sleep app and all the colors are much darker so there's less glare but also you can access it just through setting up um interacting with it on um, google devices or amazon alexa um and so i think if you can start to see other companies do that um whether they will or not because as pat was saying if their business objectives are still all based on that i think it it takes a business shift as well as a kind of shift in the design team's way of thinking so yeah yeah. it's interesting though i feel generally there's been a lot of questions raised this year about i mean you know some quite painful difficult questions about how we present women in advertising and which we haven't even got time to get into properly here but that and how you know the me too movement and questions about whether the social media networks are are being responsible enough and politics and I mean it's been a it's been a painful year (laughs) in many ways but I feel like lots of big questions are being asked and it feels like for next year I want to sort of really see some nuanced thinking about it maybe rather than just saying we know this is going on and we don't know what to do I feel it's be good to see I feel the ad industry is beginning to do that with their recent uh, acknowledgement of gender stereotyping. The ASA just recently have said they're going to change some of that in the in ads going forward. So there's stuff yeah, happening. Absolutely, and I, I don't think, um, without going kind of too deep into this, because we're, we're running short on time, um, Emma Tucker did a, a great piece on our website about whether brands are kind of finally getting over taboos. And I think... I think that's more than just a kind of trend. I don't think it's just a zeitgeist. I think there's a kind of real growing demand to be a bit more realistic in representation of women. And you mentioned um, the the gender stereotyping ban. I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. 
Um, and I think hopefully we'll see more ads with, you know, hairy legs and period blood and singing yeah. vulvas as we had in the Depresse <laughs> ad. Um, I actually feel really optimistic about about that in, in advertising because I think um, Casey Bird made a, a really good comment. So she she's creative lead at Refinery29 and um, she she said that I think there's just that real kind of appetite and demand there and that, that, that people aren't willing to accept those kind of old stereotypes that they once um, accepted or, or maybe just didn't feel like a challenge. And I think now they have a bit more of a voice to challenge that. So hopefully that'll be a kind of lasting change. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see how that evolves, I guess, next year. Yeah, definitely more of that in 2019. All right, on that note, uh, we will finish. Uh, thanks everyone this year for reading Creative Review. You can read more about these stories on creativereview.co.uk. All right, thanks.